Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. This is uh, Father Frank Lane, and we're continuing our program, Foundations in Faith. Today, we're going to look at the Gospel according to St. Luke, the 10th chapter, the 25th to the 37th verse. It is the lawyer who um, presents to Jesus the question of what, I, what must I do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus asks him then, you know, um, what is written in the law and what do you read there? And the lawyer then recites the Shema of Israel, the combination of uh, passages from Deuteronomy and Leviticus that tell us the great commandment, love of God and love of neighbor. So Jesus says to him when he when he repeats the Shema Israel, he says, "You have answered correctly. Um, if you do this, and life is yours." In other words, it's not just a law; it's not just an idea. That it has to it has to have a concrete existential manifestation for it to become a reality. We are neither purely theoretical beings nor are we purely practical beings. The wholeness of the person includes both things. It includes our minds and our hearts and our bodies. And so the idea of, you know, that, well, you know, I believe in Jesus Christ and and I practice the faith um, according to the precepts of the Church and the Ten Commandments and so forth, but I can't possibly be bothered by what goes on in anybody else's life, is not a legitimate response to the invitation of the Lord to love. And this, this when, so Jesus then goes in to, to tell the man um, that when he asks, you know, Jesus, well, if a love of neighbor, who is my neighbor? And Jesus then tells the story of the Good Samaritan. And I think that, you know, we're, we're familiar with that. We know exactly what it is all about. Um, and we know the lesson that Jesus chooses to make. But there's all sorts of bits and pieces to the story which kind of flesh out a little bit our understanding of this passage of the Scripture. For once again, a story is forever. An idea comes and goes. Um, <clears throat> and that's the nature of, of, of the Scriptures. The, the stories are kind of immortal. If you just explained it all in kind of a theoretical treatise, it would have disappeared a long time ago. Because the images and the pictures represent themselves in every age. They affect every culture, and every person is able then to relate to them in a different kind of way, in a way consistent with the uh, sociological uh, milieu, the political milieu in which they live. And so the scripture then develops a great flexibility um, by, by manifesting, by, by speaking in stories rather than in theory. This is also, of course, the reason behind uh, Jesus' use of parables. Um, he could say, well, your neighbor is everybody, and, uh, and then leave it at that. But that, that lacks the bite, that lacks the, uh, the interior response that is needed from a person to truly understand what it is that Jesus is talking about. So he goes on then, A man was once on his way down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of bandits. They took all he had, beat him, and then made off, leaving him half dead. 
All right, there's, there's a story here, too. There was a great deal of traffic between Jerusalem, foot traffic between um, Jerusalem and Jericho. They came down out of the hills of Judah, and, and Jericho was kind of a place where many of the priestly families lived in Jericho. And the, the father, the priests of the family, would go back and forth on the road to Jerusalem to fulfill their temple duties. And uh, it's also there in Jericho by the Dead Sea where John appears in the desert, which, you know, adds some credence to the theory that John was associated with the Essene community, which was in the desert there also. Um, but it also is, is, a, is, a, is a road that goes by cra- um, crags and crevices and hills and all of those kinds of things and makes, makes a, a perfect hiding place for bandits, for robbers. And the, the, the people on the road are fairly helpless against that kind of thing. And so while there's heavy traffic, heavy foot traffic between Jerusalem and Jericho, and the descent is about 2,600 feet um, down from Jerusalem into Jericho. So the journey to Jericho is, uh, is a little bit easier than the journey from Jericho to Jerusalem, where you have to climb the 2,600 feet, ascend the 2,600 feet to arrive back in the city. So what happens then is that there is, there is a man, he doesn't tell us who it is, the presumption is he's Jewish, and he's coming down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he gets waylaid by robbers and beaten half to death. Then something interesting happens. Now a priest happened to be traveling down the same road that when he saw the man he passed by on the other side. In the same way, um, a Levite who came to the place saw him and passed by on the other side. Now, this, if they're priests and Levites, then why, why don't they stop and why don't they help this man? There's a couple, there's some real possible explanations of that. And, and one of them is that they're in a hurry. Um, we know ourselves if we come by some kind of an accident or something and it's, it's going to disrupt our schedule. Um, the temptation, whether we do it or not, the temptation is to hurry on and get it out of our minds, out of our sights, and get on with our lives. So that's not an unusual thing, actually. The other thing is, those who lived by the prescription of the law and not by the Shema Israel, not by the Great Commandment, that um, they, it wasn't only what they couldn't do, but also very specifically the law stated what they should do. And there was nowhere in the law that said that they should come to the aid of, of, of a man beaten alongside the road. There's some danger involved in that, too. If you stop to dilly-dally with a man who is beaten, then you might end up that way yourself because you don't know where the robbers are. You don't know where they're hidden in the crevices and the, and the, of, of, along the trail. And so it's a matter of both of safety but a matter of the law. They're not obliged to, to do that by the law itself. And this is the law that Jesus abrogates. This is not the idea of Jesus abrogating law per se is is ridiculous. Jesus followed it carefully and uh, when he took exception to it he was had a good reason to do so. Um, he and his family, Mary and Joseph observed all of the prescripts of the law. Um, the whole idea of the presentation in the temple and the idea of the going up for the Passover, all of that. All of that was very much a part of the, uh, of the practice of the Holy Family. So it's not, 
it's not denigrating the idea of law, prescriptive law, but it's saying that the law can't limit the great commandment. Um, it is supposed to enhance it and support it. So the law that allowed the priest and the Levite to pass by, Jesus disregards. This is what it means, too, when St. Paul talks about we are free from the law. He doesn't mean that we're free from all law at all. What it means is that we are, we are free from the limitations to charity that the law might impose, as it did in this case among the priest and the Levite going back and forth from Jerusalem to Jericho. This idea of freedom from the law became very much a part of the division in Christianity in the 16th century. And while Luther preached, you know, the abrogation of the law, when in fact the serfs of the medieval manners had that preached to them, they interpreted it as it was presented. That is, that they have free from all law. Free from all law, they were therefore free from their bondage to the lords, <clears throat> free from their bondage to the land, and free from, their, free from the restrictions that feudal law imposed upon them as far as even as moving and marriage and all of those kinds of things went. And so they, feeling like it is the Christian thing to do, rebelled. And you had the great peasant revolt of 1525 in which Luther then turned viciously on them and said, you know, isn't it a strange time, paraphrasing, isn't it a strange time that, you know, to kill, to stab, to slaughter the peasant is a quicker way to go to heaven than, you know, than to tolerate the, the rebellion. And Luther then becomes himself very much tied to civil law, not to ecclesiastical law, but to civil law and becomes a great defender of civil authority over the rights of the Church, which is a characteristic, actually, of contemporary Protestantism, too. Um, <clears throat> but a mainstream Protestantism, certainly the evangelicals don't, don't feel that way. Most of them don't. So, basically, then, what happens is that this freedom from the law is, is really kind of a complex thing. It's a difficult thing. Here, Jesus is going to manifest and express what it really means to be free from the law. And the freedom from the law is not to do just as we please, any time we please. The freedom from the law is the freedom to do good the freedom to do good to our neighbor. And that, you know, and that might be one of the great lessons of the story of the Good Samaritan. And uh, Jesus also, in, in this parable, what, what he does is, um, what, what he does is he makes it interesting that, uh, that he's comparing now, you know, um, Jews and Samaritans, and we know that they were at enmity with each other. We know, we've heard in the Gospels too, that Jesus can't go through Samaritan towns, they won't welcome him, that there is great hostility between Judaism and the Samaritans. Um, the Samaritans were a group that lived kind of north of Jerusalem. Um, their territory lay between Galilee and Jerusalem, which is why Jesus was intending to go through there before they refused him passageway. And um, Basically, they were, they were kind of, we might say, fallen away Jews who had adapted several um, pagan practices within their, their religious observance. We encounter this again when Jesus, in John's Gospel, meets the Samaritan woman at the well. Um, we, we, in, in, you know, when, when, the, uh, when the woman says to Jesus, you know, but I'm a Samaritan, when he offers to give her, you know, to haul water for her. Um, 
that it's... Um, and we certainly understand those kinds of divisions. I mean, the world is, is totally fractured, and um, there is great hostility between, between different kinds of peoples. Um, that's kind of the, the root of, of the whole racist business in the United States, is to break down the barriers that have been created. And actually, the barriers were, were created after the Civil War, interestingly enough when the, the when the, the the southern politicians and so forth resisted a real emancipation of the of of the african slaves and uh, reduced them then to a segregated society which lasted for for 100 years and uh, you didn't dare go into each other's territory because it was fairly dangerous to do so um, then the, the, the political nonsense that went on after that was, you know, keeping trying to keep them dependent on the government so that the government could can not only control them um, and, but use them for political purposes and also to um, e- exploit them financially. So we're, we're well aware of this kind of problem, of this kind of issue. Within, uh, within our own society. So the priests pass by, and uh, they pass by because they're not bound by the law to stop and take care of the beaten man. But then Jesus says, a Samaritan traveling who came upon him was moved with compassion when he saw him. We have here now also an allusion to Matthew 5, uh, verses 43 and following the way Jesus is talking about, you know, the love of enemy. What good does it do if you only love those who love you? You have to love those who hate you as well. Otherwise, you know, you're no better than anybody else. Um, or you behave no better than anyone else. And this whole idea of the love of our enemies is, uh, is kind of a foundational principle of, uh, of medieval law and modern law up into the present age. Um, I think we're, we're, we're moving beyond the, uh, the, the Christian era of lawmaking into post-Christian lawmaking. And uh, where we place, for instance, the autonomy of the individual over and above the common good. And uh, place the autonomy of the individual over and against those who, are, those who experience some kind of dependency within the society. The, the Roe v. Wade um, decision, based on Justice Douglas's idea, the penumbra of privacy, um, was basically um, saying that anyone who is totally dependent on another person does not have legal personhood, such as the unborn, the elderly, the sick, and so forth, so that you can have euthanasia, you can have abortion, you can have all those kinds of things, because the people's lives are not worth anything, because they are either biologically or financially or sociologically dependent on the healthy uh, um, component of the society. So it was really, Roe v. Wade was really in many ways a, a reenactment of the, uh, of the legislation and the legal view of, uh, of the whole slavery business. Um, the Dred Scott decision, which was essentially a state's rights decision, but did nevertheless defined the slave as the property, as the private property of the owner, and therefore the owner rightly um, under the law of the, uh, of the Supreme Court, had the right to own another person. 
and 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 that's um, in the in the in the ridiculous abortion um, protests that we're having, um, and and the violence that comes from those kinds of things. It's the same thing as we went through in the middle of the 19th century with the idea of slavery. Is the, does the dependency of another human person take away from them their legal personhood? Is that true of the unborn? Is that true of the sick and the elderly and so forth? Um, and the answer to that, of course, uh, according, according to the gospel, is absolutely no. We have no right to do that. Um, but here we have now a Samaritan someone from a hated ethnic group who comes upon an injured Jew lying along the road between Jerusalem and Jericho, and he experiences compassion. The, uh, the priest and the Levite are slaves of the law. The Samaritan is free from that law, and so free also to, to express legitimate and normal human emotion. And so... He stops to look after the man, and he bandaged his wounds and poured oil and wine on them. Um, before, before there was a whole idea of germs, they knew that somehow or other oil and wine, um, which we know is in some ways a disinfectant, um, helped to heal wounds. It's interesting because um, in, in the mid-19th century, Florence Nightingale um, still denied the existence of infection and of germs and considered it superstitious. When the Irish Sisters of Mercy came to minister, to, to, to give health care to the soldiers of the Crimean War, and they knew that cleanliness was part of how you saved wounded men, um, Florence Nightingale made fun of them and told them they, they know how typical them just to be superstitious Irishmen believing, and she even said, I suppose you believe in germs. It isn't until the 19th century that we discover, um, in a very, in a, in a kind of a difficult way, the existence of infection and germs and all this kind of thing. So the Samaritan uh, didn't know that, but he did know that, that wine and, and oil had a healing, soothing effect on people's injuries. And then it says he lifted him up on his own mount and carried him to the inn and looked after him. Um, not only did he dress his wounds and everything, but he went that extra mile and he put him on his own mount, on his own um, beast of, of, uh, of probably a, a donkey, and, uh, and took him to the, uh, to the inn. And then he even goes further than that. Uh, the next day, it says, he took out two denarii and handed them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and on my way back, I will make good any extra expenses that you have. So he was going to, he also was going to continue his way down to Jericho, but he had stopped to take care of this man and even paid for his lodging and told the innkeeper, whatever additional expenses there might be, I will pay you on the way back. And there was no doubt about what he would be coming back that way because that was the only road back to Jerusalem. And so he was coming back from the desert communities. Um, what the Samaritan was doing on that road, we're not told, but it doesn't matter because that wasn't Jesus's point. Jesus's point was that those under the law did not have, did, were not able to manifest and show the great commandment, whereas the one who was not under the law was free to do so under the laws of charity. And that's the point 
of the Good Samaritan story. Not how awful priests and Levites are, but the impact of the law on the great commandment, on the Shema Israel. And, and that's something that, that we have to be very cognizant of, and that's something we have to be very careful about. And so as this goes on then, and as the story continues, um, Jesus, uh, Jesus then turns to this lawyer, which initially um, presented him with the question, who is my neighbor? And so Jesus says to him, which of these three do you think proved himself a neighbor to the man who fell into the brigand's hands? And the, the, the lawyer says, obviously, the one who took pity on him. And Jesus replied to him, then, then go and do the same thing yourself. Do likewise. So the, the, the parable, the story of the parable, is a contrast between the Shema Israel, the great law of love of God and neighbor, and contrasting with the restrictive law, the restrictive rabbinical law of, of the Israel of, of Jesus' time, and the Israel also of, of Paul's time, as he is one of those who lives under the law until he experiences conversion on, on the road to Damascus. What we then, what do we do ourselves with all of this? How do we, imp, how do we implement this? How do we, how do we uh, let this become part of our life? And if we go back and we hook up with that passage from Matthew's Gospel, on which some of this is based, the idea of love of enemy, then we find out that we have a task within the contemporary world. There are certainly many within our society who appear to be loathsome creatures, who seem to be creatures of a, of a law of privacy, a law of individualism, of, of isolated individualism, a law with no responsibility to others, a law used oftentimes to manipulate others for their, our own good. And so while the multimillionaire politicians um, try to uh, manipulate the, the poorer sections of society because they actually do disdain them. They're living, they're living under the civil law, the civil law of Justice Douglas's penumbra of privacy, that anything dependent is not, is not worthwhile, and that it's to be used and, and not to be honored. This certainly was, was the whole idea of slavery, but it was also the whole um, post-reconstructionist idea of the ghettoizing of the minorities in such a way that they could be continually exploited, oftentimes by their own, um, and, and kept subservient and, and kept as a political base. Um, it, was, it was kind of fascinating that in the 1960s, it was some of the Southern senators who voted against, including Al Gore's father, Senator Gore of Tennessee, voted against the emancipation of, 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 or the civil rights legislation of the 1950s and 60s. Because the pattern had been established that those who existed in a dependency upon society were not real persons after all. And by not being real persons, they could not also be our neighbors, because our neighbors are all real persons. Real persons in distress, real persons in being upset, um, um, re real persons in the suffering that they endure, the social suffering, the economic suffering, and so forth, the, the cultural suffering that they do because of isolation and exploitation. So, so we're not without this. And I think that the other apical place 
applicable place for this kind of thing is in the whole question of war. Um, we have, of course, Augustine's just wars theory, and and we try to uh, we we try very much to uh, to evaluate war on on the basis of the, of that theory as Catholics. Yet at this and, and yet at the same time we can say well that no longer applies because of the the nuclear threat. But you know, in the First World War, twenty million people were killed. And even in the Thirty Years' War, about the same number were killed. You know, 20,000 in a single battle in the, in the, uh, in the uh, Thirty Years' War um, between the Protestants and, and, uh, and Catholics, primarily in Germany, in which Cardinal Richelieu of France sided with, uh, made an alliance with the Protestants in order to curb the, the, uh, the power of the Catholic Empire. So it's all very confused, and it isn't just you can't just say, "Well, that's what religion breeds." No, it doesn't. I mean, these were this was an this was the Thirty Years' War was a war of imperial policy, and and a war, a cultural war, and a political war. Like I said, Cardinal Richelieu uh, aligned himself, aligned France with uh, with the the Lutheran Gustavus Adolphus of Sweden as he invaded Germany in an attempt to to crush the power of the empire so so but how do we how do we go to war we teach hate we teach people to hate the other persons um we teach people that you know for instance in world war 2 that the germans were bad human beings that the japanese were bad human beings and uh, and therefore, you know, and those those wounds um, certainly existed um, existentially in my parents' generation, for sure. And uh, and but also in many other ways, we can always we can always pick our enemies, and we can always learn to loathe our enemies. And we cannot be an effective war machine without hatred at the at the foundation of it. Um, because you, you you can't. It's it's like during the Cold War. Um, you know, you hated Russians, <clears throat> even though you never met one. And uh, and 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 we find. And this is not to deny the political realities, and not to deny the uh, the aggressiveness, for instance, of Pearl Harbor, or the ag- aggressiveness of. Uh, you know, of the Soviet Union after the Second World War, all of this kind of thing. It's not to deny any of that. But it's to say that if the hate on both sides were to be alleviated by by the Christian ideal of the Shema Israel, by the Christian ideal of the Great Commandment, then it would be very difficult to gather the public support to wage these ghastly wars that we have. World War I was probably one of the most ridiculous wars ever fought for no reason whatsoever. Yet at the same time, um, you know, we lost 20 people, the, the world lost 20 million people. There was a great documentary about the impact that had on smaller societies like on Ireland, which was really interesting about who it removes, therefore I suppose we could say from the gene pool, and uh, how it cuts off, therefore, any kind of normal expansion of human qualities and conditions in the, in the generational when you go from generation to generation. At any rate, the story of the Good Samaritan is something that is very important to our faith life, but it is also very important that we understand truly what it is, 
not on the wickedness of the priests and the Levites, but actually on the freedom from the restrictive law, the rabbinical law, and the opening up of the human heart to the needs and the wonders of our world. Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. Archives of Foundations in Faith are available at stgabrielradio.com. Yeah.